Good afternoon, brethren. It's always wonderful to gather together on God's Sabbath day. It's a privilege, and we should be thankful for the opportunity to do that. My father, in the sermon last week, at the very beginning, asked a question. And I thought it's an interesting question that can be considered in many different ways. He said, what is the difference between our Sabbath services and those of the early church? And what would they have talked about, preached about, and done differently than we do today? And as he is imploring the church and hoping all of us will continue to, in essence, think on and try to live our lives on this theme of restoring original Christianity, what the original Christian church did is something that we do need to consider in many different aspects. As he talked about the relationship that we have to have with Jesus Christ being so very important. And that is very important. But I want to talk about something else today. Because restoring original Christianity is an important theme, and there's many, many different things that we can think about that we perhaps need to be doing differently in our lives so that we can be pleasing God even better than we are today. So let's begin by picking up Going to Acts chapter 2, this was one of the first scriptures that he used last week. But as we think about the early church, where did it begin? When did it begin? It began in Acts chapter 2, didn't it? Acts chapter 2, obviously, this is where God's Spirit was poured out on His people, the apostles that were there. Peter gave the sermon that stirred the people to action at the end of it. And they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? In verse 38, of course, Peter said, repent and be baptized. And you shall receive the Holy Spirit. That's very key. We have to do that. But that's not the end of it, is it? Repenting, being baptized, receiving the Holy Spirit is just the beginning of our Christian lives. It goes on from there to many other things. Let's go on and pick it up then in verse 38, where he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That's us today. That's us in the church of God. And he goes on to say, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his words were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added unto them. You talk about exponential church growth. Wouldn't that be awesome? 3,000 souls were baptized? It would take a little bit of time, I think. Even if we had all the ministers here at headquarters doing it, it would take some time to baptize all those people. But they did it. And God added to the church and granted them growth. But what does it say they did then? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. You see that? They continued steadfastly in their doctrine, in what they were taught by the apostles. Doctrine is very important that we understand it and that we live it and that we do it. We understand in the church of God there are many doctrines. The Bible is full of doctrines. If we go back to Hebrews chapter 6, we see some of the basic doctrines that we understand. It's not all of the doctrines by any means, just the basic ones. Hebrews 6, verse 1 says, Therefore, leaving the discussions of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. They're not already perfected. We aren't perfected. We're being perfected day by day. How do we do that? We go on to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of. And then he goes on to describe some of these foundational 
doctrines of the church, the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and the doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. These are just some of the basic, fundamental, foundational doctrines. We should understand them. We should know them. But there's much more to it than that. Turn back to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, chapter 4. Here the Apostle Paul, once again, writing to Timothy, who was, he was instructing on what he was to be doing, how he was to be working with the churches, trying to help him to understand what his responsibility was and how to do it even better. In verse 1, he says and talks about doctrines, doesn't he? He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Where are we today? Are we not in latter times? It says some will depart from the faith. And we have seen that happen, haven't we? And we're going to continue to see it happen. It's unfortunate, but it's true. It's the way things are. God understands the human mind. And so he puts this prophecy in here that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and to doctrines of demons. Deceiving spirits, people that are out there to deceive you. Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 talked about the latter times and what is going to happen before the end of the age, didn't he? And what did he say in verse 11? He said there would be many false prophets that would arise and deceive many. They're going to arise where? Are they going to rise out there in the world and deceive many in the world? Well, there's plenty of them out there, but there's also those that may come from within the church of God that we have to be aware of. And if we don't understand the doctrines of the church and we aren't living them, they're not a part of us. We can be deceived. We have to make sure that we're not allowing ourselves to be deceived. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. Watch out for these things. Help your brethren to look out for them. Be careful. These things are out there. And then he goes on to talk about some of the things that would happen. And dropping down to verse 6, he says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. He said, you have carefully followed the good doctrine. If you do these things, if you teach the brethren these things, if you help them to understand the doctrines, you'll be doing your job well. They'll understand the good doctrine which you have carefully followed because then he would be living it as well himself. And so that's what the Apostle Timothy was told to do. If we drop down a few more verses to verse 13, he says, Till I come, give attention regarding to exhorting to doctrine. Once again, exhort the brethren so that they understand the doctrines. They understand what they are in depth, not just on the surface. We all understand thou shalt not kill. But that's just on the surface. It goes deeper than that. Jesus explained that. He says, you shall not kill, but you shall not hate your brother. You shall not even want to kill him in your heart or you have already committed the sin. We have to understand what the doctrines are fully and completely. He says, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Think on them. We should think on them. These words are for us. They were for him, but they're for us today as well. We meditate on these things understand, so that we can understand them even better. Give yourself entirely to them. Our whole life has to be about living God's way of life, understanding the truth of God, a precious truth that we have been given. That's what our lives should be about. Give yourselves entirely entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all and take heed to yourself and to the doctrine continue in them for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you and so that's what god's ministers in essence are commissioned to do that we can help you and of course as we study the doctrines we can understand them better ourselves too and we can all grow 
And we can, in essence, as it says, save both yourself and those who hear you. And so today I want to talk about doctrine. I want to talk about a particular doctrine that maybe you hadn't thought about of before. Let's go back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, where we started out here. We're going to go back here a couple of times. In Acts chapter 2, we were reading in verse 42. And he says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. This is what they continued to do. They continued in the doctrine and in fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. And this is what I want to talk about today is fellowship. And the title of my sermon is The Doctrine of Fellowship. And some of you may be thinking, the doctrine of fellowship? I've never heard that fellowship is a doctrine of the church of God. That's an interesting concept. But yet, what is a doctrine? What is a doctrine? What does the word doctrine mean? It simply means a teaching, something that we are taught to do. And God's word does tell us about fellowship. And fellowship is a very important doctrine that we all have to do. We all have to have a part of us. We have to be doing this. And we're going to talk about this doctrine today. Now, if you don't believe me, perhaps you'll believe God's word. Turn over to 2 Timothy. Because... I don't want you to necessarily believe me. I just simply want you to believe what God's word tells us. Second Timothy. I guess it would help if I went from first to second. Second Timothy chapter three. Verse 16 tells us a very profound truth. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God breathed. Every word of this book is God's word of truth that we are to live by every word of God. Are we not? If you don't believe that every word in this book is God's word of truth and that we are to live by it, then why are you here today? We believe this. It's a part of it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? For doctrine, for teaching, to be taught by is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction when we're doing things wrong. Sometimes we don't even realize we're doing things wrong until somebody points it out and said, this is the way you should be doing it. We don't know we're doing wrong always. And God's word teaches us before God called us. We were doing a lot of things that were wrong, but we didn't necessarily even realize it. We didn't see it. But God's word is what teaches us that it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and for instruction in righteousness. And what is the reason for all of that? Verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work so that we can do good. We can serve God and we can love God. So, like I said, don't believe me. Believe what's in this book. Believe what God, God's word tells us that we are to do. A lot of people in this world, as, as you hear the different catchphrases that go around, they talk, talk about thinking outside the box. Oh, you've got to think outside the box. You can't get caught up in this little box. But as Christians, we have to make sure that we don't find ourselves thinking outside this book. Because if we start thinking outside the book and putting our own interpretations and our own ideas in, we're going to find that our name is not going to be written in another book, aren't we? And that's what we want, isn't it? We want our name to be written in the book of life. So we'd better stick to what's written in this book so that we can please God and we can have our name written in the other book. So let's take some time today to talk about the doctrine of fellowship. What is it all about? We think about the first century church and what they were doing. 
they had a kind of fellowship back then, I'm sure that was different in many ways than we do today. What was different about what they did as opposed to what we do, perhaps? The dictionary, dictionary defines fellowship as friendly relationship, companionship, community of interest, communion, that is, interchange or sharing of thoughts or emotions, intimate communication between members of the same church, friendliness, an association of persons having similar tastes, interests, etc. We all understand the basic meanings of that, I'm sure. This is not some new idea or concept that you hadn't thought of before. We understand that, that fellowship is about having good relationships, companionship, and all of that sort of thing. We have to have these attributes. God wants us to have these attributes. And if we don't have these attributes, and this isn't a part of us, then we're just a bunch of people running around in different directions. The only thing that makes us the body of Christ, the church, is the fact that we have this fellowship, that we have this oneness of mind, this oneness of spirit. We have to have fellowship with one another, get to know one another in a way that typically the rest of the people in this world don't know each other. They know each other more on a surfacey basis, but we've got to come to know one another in a deeper, more profound way. If you look around this room today at the different people that are here, ask yourself the question, if God hadn't called me into this church, would I know a single person in this room today other than dad sitting over there? Probably not. We're all very different people. We're all from very different backgrounds. We all have different likes and different dislikes. Different talents, different abilities. God has called us together as a church, and He wants us to be one. And we've got to have fellowship with one another so that we can be one, so that we can love one another. We call ourselves a fellowship as a church. But yet, do we really have the fellowship that we should? Psalm 133. I think most of us probably know this one by heart. Mrs. Armstrong's favorite scripture, Mr. Armstrong used to say, or maybe it was his mother's, I forget. It was either his wife or mother, one of the Mrs. Armstrongs. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. How good and how pleasant. Isn't it pleasant when we all get along? Isn't it good to get along with other people? to be able to talk, to fellowship, to have a good time. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's what God wants us to do. And if we look at that scripture and say how good and how pleasant it is for people to fellowship together in unity, to dwell and fellowship together, we've got to be doing that. As we look back at Acts chapter 2, once again, we see how the New Testament church at that time, just the fledgling little 3,000 of them and a few more, dwelt together in unity. Let's pick it up again, going back to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. They were eating meals together. They were praying together. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. You see, God was doing great wonders and healings, miracles through the apostles. Part of that, perhaps, was because that church was so unified so together. And as we think about what's going on in the church today, and all of those who are sick, talking about in the announcements today, Mr. Pyle, my stepmother here, and many others who are sick, we want them desperately to be healed. We pray to God and ask Him for that. 
perhaps if we are together more as a church and we have better fellowship with one another and we love one another more, God will begin to pour out His Spirit on His church even more so than He does right now. It says they did many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them amongst all as anyone had need. Think about that concept. So sell everything you have, empty your bank accounts, clear out your stock portfolios, Clear out your garages of all your old cars, you guys, and your tools and all of our boy toys that we have. Sell it all. Give it to the church. And then the church takes care of you and disperses it evenly amongst the others. That's not a concept that really works with us today. And that's not something that the church is trying to do today or even expects people to do today. But yet... This is how together these people were. This is how close-knit they were. They were willing to give everything to the church, putting their lives in the hands of God and the church. They were together in all things. They sold everything. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. You see, a simplicity of heart. There were no ulterior motives. No one was out to get anything because no one had anything to get. They had given it all away. They just were dwelling together. And it says they were doing it daily, continuing daily with one, with one accord in the temple. This wasn't the Feast of Tabernacles. This wasn't the Days of Unleavened Bread. This is right after... The day of Pentecost, there were no holy days. They weren't gathered there other than having to come to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost, perhaps. But they were gathered together there daily, it says. And they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. God was blessing the church with growth daily. Every single day, it says. How awesome would that be to have new people coming into God's church right here in our congregation every single day? A new person. A year from now, we'd barely fit in this hall. I don't know how many seats are in here, but if we think about the next 365 days and we just added one person a day, we'd be up there in the rafters. That'd be great, wouldn't it? God was blessing the church but the church was together. They were fellowshipping together as a church. They loved one another. They had a realization that fellowshipping with people of like mind was important. This is a Christian attribute, and it's necessary for growth. If we look at our prime example, the one who set the ultimate example for us, Jesus Christ, and the type of person that he was, what did he do? Was he off sitting off by himself, having nothing to do with anyone else all the time? Is that the way he did things? Of course not. Of course not. Jesus Christ was with the disciples day after day. He was teaching the people. He was out amongst the people. He was criticized by the Pharisees for eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners and everybody else. Why wasn't he off over there with just his little disciples? No, he was out getting to know the people. He was fellowshipping with them. When he was out there and he fed 5,000 and then 4,000 at that, as we understand, just the men. So obviously it could have been 15 or 20,000 each time. Did he just say, well, you, you take care of feeding them. I'm, I'm, I'm going to head off over here. He was out there with them. He was talking to them. He was walking amongst them. He was getting to know them. He loved being with people. Think about his first miracle. John chapter 2. John chapter 2. People think that Jesus Christ kept to himself. Then why did he do this? 
In John chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of, of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. They were invited to the wedding. You know what? I don't like going to weddings, really. I go because I have to, so to speak, but weddings just aren't my thing. I went to my own, but, you know, my wife said I had to be there, so I was like, oh, okay. I wanted to just elope and get it over with. You know, I go through all that whole big thing, a bunch of people, but Jesus Christ was invited. So what did he say? No, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't do weddings. That's, you know, it, that's, that's not me. I, I'm, I'm busy over here fishing or something. No, it's not what happened, is it? He was invited to the wedding, him and the disciples. And when they ran out of wine... The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So here he is at the wedding. He has gone to the wedding and they've run out of wine. Now, I don't know how much of the whole story we have here, but the understanding is that back in that time, weddings were just a little different than they are today. Today we have a nice little ceremony and then maybe a meal afterwards and a little dance and whatever. But it lasts a few hours. But back in those days, wedding celebrations could go on for days, up to a week. They ran out of wine. After how long? Doesn't tell us. Might have been a day. Might have been two days. We don't know. But they ran out and Jesus said, his mother said, hey, they have no wine. So what does Jesus do? He say, well... They've had enough to drink already. That's, you know, let them drink water. That's good for them. Wine's not real good. It's not what he did, did he? Jesus was there to enjoy the wedding, to enjoy being with people. He wanted them to enjoy it. He wanted them to get the most out of it. He wanted them to be fulfilled. And so what does he do? He turns water into wine so they could have a wonderful celebration. Jesus liked a good party, you could say. He wanted everybody to be together and to stay there. If they ran out of wine, a lot of people might have left. And they wanted them to stay. And so he performed the miracle where he turned water into wine. That was the type of person he was. He wanted others to enjoy life. He wanted others to get the most out of life. And he wanted to be with others. He enjoyed being with others throughout his life. I think that as we look at ourselves and ask ourselves, am I doing my best, not just to get the best out of life for me, but to help others get the best out of life, to help them to enjoy life? That's what true love is about. It's outgoing. It's not incoming. It's not saying you bring to me, you make me happy. It's your job to satisfy me. No, it's my job to satisfy you. That's the way we should be. And that's the type of fellowship that our fellowship should be. It should be outgoing, caring for others, not caring for ourselves. Jesus Christ loved everyone. And he wants us to love him. And he wants us to love his father just as they love us. And Jesus Christ even said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Why is that new? It's not new, except when you add on the next part of the verse. As I have loved you, as I have done it, he showed the ultimate care, the ultimate concern for each and every one of us by giving his life for us. True outgoing concern. He cares about us. He cared about the people of his time. He wants us to love one another as he loves us. And he wants us to love him as well. What about the New Testament church? As we think about as they went forward year after year, you could say, well, right there at the very beginning, they saw these huge miracles. They were all excited. They were all together. But they had that first love and it kind of wears off after a while. Well, that's an unfortunate truth. That first does love does kind of wear off after a while, doesn't it? But should it? Should our first love for the truth, for God, and for one another wear out? 
Should our love for our wives, your wives for your husbands, should that wear off? Or should you develop a deeper love as you come to know one another better through fellowship? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In verse 1 we read, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace God has bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. So he's telling them about the churches of Macedonia. That in great trial of affliction and abundance, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Here was a church that was going through great trials and afflictions, and yet they were able to count it all joy in spite of the fact of the trials they were having, the abundance of their joy, their deep poverty. The commentaries all say that this church was probably very impoverished. They didn't have a lot to give. They didn't have a lot of physical possessions and money and things. They were impoverished. But he says that they abounded in the riches of their liberality. This word that's translated as liberality can also be translated as sincerity and simplicity. This church sincerely abounded in liberality, in giving and helping, in sincerity. They're, they were sincere about it. It wasn't just that they did it because they had to. But in spite of the fact of how little they had, they did a lot. He goes on to say, For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. You see, they pushed upon Paul and the others what they had to give them. They had little to give. They gave out of their poverty, not out of their abundance. It's easy to give out of your abundance. When you're being blessed and you've got all kinds of things to give, that's easy. But when you have very little, it's a little harder, isn't it? Fellowship is something we have to work at, but it's something we have to want to do. It's something we have to have a desire to do. It has to be in our heart, not just up here. Well, I know I should do this, so I guess I better do it. No, it's got to be in here. It's got to be in that heart of flesh that you've been given, that you want to share of the abundance of what you have, but also you share in what you don't have, so to speak. Out of what little you have, you can give as well, and you can do it happily. The ministering of the saints, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. You see, the church there was giving themselves to God first and foremost. He owns us. Their lives are his. They realize that. But then they gave themselves to the church, as it were. Serving and helping, giving what they could. They didn't have much to give, but they gave what they could. And verse 6 says, So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. He says, we urge him to try to get you guys to have this same type of mindset. The Corinthian church just like any church, had things that they could do better. God knows each of us can do better. He knows each of us is trying, but He knows we can also do better. But we've got to want to. It's got to be a desire that we have to do better. You know, a number of years ago, my wife and I used to go down to the feast in Fiji. Back in... Days of Worldwide Church of God, they had a number of members down there. We went there a number of times and got to know the brethren there. Very kind, loving people, but very poor, had very little. The average wage of the day, I think, was somewhere around, I don't know, 
less than a dollar an hour. I forget what it was now. Very little. I gave the maid in the hotel a tip one time, like $5, and you thought I would have given her a week's salary. It was, you know, she was amazed. But one year, the brethren down there, well, every year they served. The, the people came over from the United States that would come to the feast there, and they would insist on having them come over to where they were staying. They couldn't take anybody out to a restaurant, to some nice fancy restaurant, give them a nice meal and a nice bottle of wine and all of that, because they didn't have the money to do that. They were scraping by just to get to the feast. They had to bring all of their food with them for the most part. Vegetables from their gardens, meat if they had fish that they had caught or chickens perhaps they had killed or whatever. They had very little but yet they always insisted on inviting the foreigners to come over and eat with them and fellowship with them. It was a loving, wonderful, kind atmosphere. And we enjoyed that very much because we live in a country that's blessed with so much that we take for granted all of these nice things. We have everything we could possibly ask for. And those of us who have the least have so much more than they did. But yet... What were they doing? They were giving out of their poverty because they wanted to fellowship. They wanted to get to know us. They wanted to get to know the brethren there and what they were doing, and what their lives were about. What's it like where you live? And we would try to talk to them about their lives and what they did. One time we were there after the feast and we went to Sabbath services and one of the members there invited us over to their home. Now, by Fijian standards, they had a very nice home. It was a block house, the flat roof. It had no windows. It had no doors. It just had, like, sheets hanging up across doorways. It had concrete for a floor. They had a few chairs, not enough for everybody to even sit on, because they had about, I think, eight kids or so, as I recall. Big family. But they were all happy. And they put out this spread of food with some fresh fruits and vegetables and a big whole fish that they had gotten. It was like they were putting out a feast for us. They had so little, but yet they wanted to share what they had. And that's the kind of attitude that God wants us to have. That's the kind of attitude God's early church had for one another, loving one another, sharing with one another, giving of one another. Spending that time together that they can do much in what, with what God has given them. And that's what we have to do. God has given us all different amounts, if you will. When you look at physical blessings or things that we have, it doesn't matter what we have. God expects us to share and to fellowship with one another. You can't take somebody out to a fancy restaurant all the time or maybe ever. It doesn't matter. Spend time together. Get to know one another. Truly have that Christian fellowship like the early church did. There's one other aspect, say well, not one other, but another aspect of fellowship that I want to talk about. If you'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Because this is also an extremely important aspect the reason that we're here today. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God is faithful in all that he has promised. We must never doubt that. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. How do you stir one another up? He goes on to say, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That's why we're here today, isn't it? That's the reason that we are gathered here together in this room. God has commanded us that this is a commanded assembly. But we're not here. You're not here to listen to me solely. You have to because you're stuck there right now and I'm the one that's up here. But 
that's just a part of it. Another big part of services is that you come here to have fellowship, to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to get to know one another, to spend quality time together. Coming to church on the, on the Sabbath day is a command. God doesn't say, do it if it's convenient. Do it if you can make it, but if not, don't worry about it. There are too many people who don't look at the Sabbath day as being that important to go to church services. There's a lot of people in the stay-at-home, quote-unquote, church of God that just think, that's fine, I can just stay at home. Others will say, well, I had a rough week. I'm really tired. Really? So did I. I look at this elderly gentleman sitting over here in the front row. Known him my whole life. I've never once in my lifetime seen him miss church services because he was tired. Because he had a rough week. He's here every week. If he's sick, that's different. And if you're sick, you shouldn't be here. But God has commanded us to come here. We'd better make the effort to be here every single week. Because if you are not making that effort, you're not doing your God-given duty. It's an obligation. It's a responsibility. Let's take it seriously. But like I said, it's important that we be here to have the fellowship with one another. Come early. Stay late. Talk to the brethren. Get to know them. How can you know what's going on in somebody else's life? What you can perhaps pray for. They're going through a trial or a test. They've got a big test coming up. Kids in school or college or whatever it happens to be. Going to take a test for a driver's license in North Carolina. Pray for me. I wish you had. I passed it, by the way. Just barely. Five questions to go. And if I missed one more, eh. I thought, that's it, I'm done. And I answered the last five. But there were no questions about cows on the road or in the last five, so I got them right. The rules of the road, were I'm good with that. But the tractors and cows, I'm not, I'm not up on those, uh, those things. But anyway, all that aside, we've got to be able to know what's going on in others' lives in order to pray for one another, encourage one another, build one another up, offer to help one another when they need help. You hear that one of the widows has a problem. Something's broken at her house or needs fixing or whatever it is. She just needs a light bulb changed and she can't get to it because it's up at the top of a ladder. It's really too tall for her. Go over and change her light bulb. But how do you know to change her light bulb if you're not talking to her? If you're not fellowshipping? If you're not getting to know what's going on? That's what coming to church is all about. It's about fellowshipping together. There's another point of fellowship that we also need to consider. Turn over to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Pick it up in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Paul says he is praying for the church daily. And obviously, that's something that we should all be doing. Praying for our brethren around the world every day. But he goes on to say, For your fellowship of the gospel from the first day until now, being confident in this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. He says, God has begun a work in us. He's not done with us. He's not done with me. He's still chipping away, taking off all those rough edges. He's still chipping away at you. He's begun it, but it says that he will complete it. But before that, as we read at the beginning of verse 5, he says, For your fellowship in the gospel. What does he mean by that? What is a fellowship in the gospel? What is that? What is that talking about? What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. The good news of the coming kingdom of God. 
It's the good news, the gospel of Christ, of who he was, what he came to this earth for, what he did, how he lived his life, and how he gave his life. And as a result of that, what that means to us in our lives. That's the gospel. We know that. But he says in your fellowship of the gospel. If we think about it, we have been given a very, very special gift. If you're given a great gift by someone, what do you do with it? Do you just keep it to yourself? If somebody gives you a big old box of chocolate, it's like, ooh, yummy. Are you going to eat that whole two-pounder by yourself? Or are you going to share it with others? We've been given a gift. We've been given a 200-pound box of chocolates. We'd better want to share that with others, not just keep it to ourselves. The fellowship of the gospel is sharing what we've been given with whomever is around us. Whether it's here at church, as we talk amongst one another, do we just talk about the weather and sports and, hey, did you hear about the Olympics? Isn't that great? United States won another gold medal today. That's great. But there's got to be more to it than that. But that only goes as far as right here within us in the church. What about when you go out there in the world in which we live? We are called to share what we've been given with all men, are we not? We are called to be lights to the world. What is the light? The light of the truth that we have been given, the gospel. We let that shine. We don't keep it to ourselves. We let that light shine and share that with anyone who wants to see it. There are those who don't want to hear about it. There are those who don't care. But there are those who are out there who do want to hear about it. And if we can share what we have been given, the great gift that we've been given, the understanding, who knows, someday you may be the reason that somebody comes in to God's church and is baptized. Because of your example, because you shared what you had been given. You didn't keep it to yourself. You didn't hide it under a bushel. You let it out there to shine. If you're out there and people are asking you about your beliefs and you just kind of him and haw around about it but never really say anything, how are you helping them? That's like you're embarrassed about what you've been given. You're embarrassed about that gift. Don't be embarrassed. Share it. It's a gift. You share the gifts that God gives us. God wants us to share what we've been given with everyone and anyone. It could be at school. It could be at work. It could be your next door neighbor. It could be a family member. You never know when you're going to run into somebody. And God might use you to, in essence, be the tool that he uses to bring that person into the church of God. Because of my job, I do a lot of traveling. And I run into people in a lot of different places. And I get a lot of questions. Because I'm talking to them about the Feast of Tabernacles and what this is, they don't understand it, and I have to explain it to them. If I went out there and just said, well, we're just having this convention, it's just kind of a religious thing. Really? What's that? I have to explain it to them. And there's times that I run into people just randomly sitting on an airplane. I'm sitting on an airplane. It's a four-hour flight to Phoenix. And there's a guy sitting next to me. We get into a conversation. He says, hey, so what are you, where are you headed off to? What are you doing? What do you do for a living? And we get to talking. On two different occasions, I've had the opportunity to do that. And as I've talked to them, we get to talking about the church, and they're interested. I'm not shoving anything down their throat. They're genuinely interested. Well, what about this and what about that? One of the guys was previously a Seventh-day Adventist, so he understood the whole Sabbath thing. And we get to talking. I get my laptop down, and it's great. Planes these days, a lot of them have Wi-Fi. I get my laptop. I get on the Internet, and I'm on the church website, and I'm showing them booklets and magazines, and I'm giving them you know, website addresses and all kinds of stuff. 
It's awesome. Technology is great. Mr. Sixelka is doing a great job getting stuff out there so I can show these people what's out there on my phone. But it's, it's something that we have got to share. That is having fellowship of the Spirit. That's what that means to me. That I can share that gift that I've been given with others. And that's what God wants us to do. That's pleasing to Him. Let's turn over next to 1 John chapter 1. There's one other aspect of fellowship that I want to cover today. And there's a lot of different things that we can look at as we think of fellowship. And you may, as you go through your studies, as you, as you read through the New Testament church, and you see different examples of things that were done, that, you'll bring, that perhaps this will bring to mind to you some of the things that they were doing. But there's another all-important, very important aspect to fellowship. And we find that in 1 John chapter 1. Verse 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. Jesus Christ, of course. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Once again, they were sharing it, weren't they? They were sharing what they had seen and what they had heard, as John's showing here. We declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. You share that so others can come in and they can have fellowship with us. As God calls more people into the church, as he reveals to them the truth, they begin to have fellowship with us. But then he goes on and says, And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's an aspect of fellowship that is all important. That we cannot and must not overlook. It really is the most important. But I left it for last because I want you to remember it the most. Our fellowship with God and Jesus Christ has to be above all. Has to be so very, very important in our lives. It's the most important part of the doctrine of fellowship. Is that we have fellowship with them. He goes on to say in verse 4, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And we have to let his light shine from us, don't we? In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see, all of these things that I'm talking about today, they all fit together. You can't just do one and not the other. They all work together. You have to do them all. Because if you don't do them all, you're really not doing any of them. If we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the, son, the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. See, if we are having fellowship with Him, we're walking in the light. We are allowing the light, the truth, to shine out from us. That light shines out as we fellowship with one another, as we serve one another, as we help one another. That's so very important that we do that that we have that true fellowship with our great God and His Son, Jesus Christ. That's something that is a, a daily thing that we have to do. And we know, and I can't, this is a whole sermon in itself, as far as obviously our relationship with God is many sermons. Last week we heard in the sermon about how very important our relationship is with our Savior and our coming King, Jesus Christ. And how we cannot ever understate that or overlook that, so to speak. We have to have a fellowship with Him. We have to spend time with Him 
Spend time with our God in heaven, getting to know them, talking to them. Our prayers are probably the most important thing that we do. We have got to read God's word. But our prayers, as we talk and converse with our great God and have fellowship with him through that, are what binds us to him. We've got to go on our knees every day, spend that time, talk to them, get to know them, open our lives to them. They know and see all, but they want to hear it from us. It's kind of like as our children grow up, we see a lot that they don't know that we see, but we still want them to come and tell us all about it. Oh, guess what happened at school today? As a parent, you can understand that. You see the excitement in your children as they tell you they got a good grade or they did this or they did that. I got a gold medal today. Wouldn't that be great? But that's just temporary. Our relationship with God is so much more important than any gold medals that there's no comparison. God wants us to talk to him. He wants us to pour our heart out to him. He wants us to have fellowship with Him and fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Savior. 1 John chapter 4, turn over a couple of pages here. There's another aspect that we have to remember as well as we think about our relationship with God and as it ties in with our relationship with one another and our fellowship with one another. 1 John chapter 4. Verse 18 says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. If we love God and we are fellowshipping with him, we will fear him as we should have the proper kind of fear, but not as some great, giant, scary, ogre monster person that's going to just destroy us every time we do anything wrong. We know he loves us and we know he cares for us. Perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. God loved us first. He loved us before we were even born. Jesus Christ was slain from the foundations of the earth. That plan was already laid out. That love was already showed to us. And he goes on in verse 20 to say, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. We can't just love God, just say, just just you and me, don't need anybody else, just you and me. No, you've got to love your brother. And if you say, I love God and you hate your brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? If we can't love one another in this room, we can see one another. We can touch one another. We can hear one another. How could we love God who we can't see? God understands that we've got to have love for one another. And as we have that love for one another, and as we fellowship with one another, that's part of that love that we show for one another. Then we show God that we love him too. We care for him. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother. Yes, We have to love our brothers or we cannot love God. We cannot have the kind of fellowship with God if we don't love our brothers, if we don't fellowship with our brothers, if we don't care about them and what's going on in their lives. If your attitude is like, you know what, that's his problem. He's a big boy. He can take care of it himself. I've said those words a few times myself. They're easy to say. It's like, you know what? You dug your grave, you know, you're going to have to lie in it. But that really isn't a loving, caring attitude, is it? We've got to love one another 
in a special way because God has called us and given us the truth, the knowledge and understanding of what love really is, what love really means. This world's definition of love is not God's definition of love. This world just cares about itself. And they will show love so they can get something, so they can get love, so they can get whatever. It's not just about total outgoing concern for one another, being willing to lay down one's life for one another. That's the love of this world. That's not the love of God. We have got to love God first and foremost. That's obvious. Jesus Christ said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. But the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. They go hand in hand. They're both vitally important aspects. And we can't love our great God if we don't spend time with Him, if we don't get to know Him, if we don't have fellowship with Him. Reading His Word, reading God's Word and understanding, it's His mind. It's how we can know how He thinks. It's how we can become closer to Him. How we can have better fellowship with Him through reading God's Word and studying. Our fellowship with God does not replace our need to fellowship with one another. We have got to spend time with both one another and with God in love. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, God is faithful, but whom you were called, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We were called into that fellowship. God called us to be able to have fellowship with Him and to be able to have fellowship with one another. We can never minimize that. That's important. Spending time together is special. I was just up at the adventure camp in Montana. What would it be? Two weeks ago today, I gave a sermon up there, standing in the middle of Glacier National Park and surrounded by trees and bears and whatever else, deer, elk, all sorts of other things, but gorgeous beauty. Bunch of kids up there. We spent five days backpacking in the park there. And that was special time. It's an awesome opportunity for the young people of God's church to do that. But you're spending special time with just a small group of people. You really get to know these people. You get to know their names. You understand who they are, where they're from. They're just a bunch of young kids that are, you know, all of them could be my kids or younger, so to speak. Like my kids are both older than most of them. But, but yet we spent those days together. And every day from the time we woke up until the time we went to bed, we were together. We were talking. We were working together. We were cooking and cleaning and getting you know, water. And everybody had to work. Everybody had to do something. But everybody, the, the great thing about it was everybody was doing something that was benefiting others for the most part. We get to camp and we have to set the tents up. And so different ones are helping set up tents. Other people are going down to the stream or to the lake and they're pumping water through a purifier so we have water to drink. Others are setting up the, the area that we're going to cook and, and cooking and then doing dishes and others out gathering firewood. Everybody was working for a common goal, for a common good, so that we could all enjoy. If we'd all just gone to the camp and gotten to the campsite and said, okay, throw a pack on the ground, what would happen? Wouldn't be very fun, would it? We all had to work together. But when we did, everybody enjoyed it. That's what fellowship is about. Working together for the good of all, for the overall good, but getting to know one another. That's what God wants us to do. Our fellowship with Him is vitally important. As I said at the beginning of my sermon, fellowship is not something most of us think about as a doctrine. I know I certainly didn't until I started preparing the sermon. My wife even said, that's not a doctrine. I said, 
Well, it's a teaching, isn't it? God teaches us that we need to have fellowship. Isn't that what a doctrine is? It's just something that we're taught to do. Hopefully today I've given you some things to think about as you go forward in your lives so that you can truly begin to have better fellowship with one another, sharing the gift of the fellowship of the Spirit, the knowledge and the understanding of the truth that God has given us. And of course, most importantly, having fellowship with our great God, spending our time talking to Him, getting to know Him, opening our heart up to Him, having that special relationship and that bond of fellowship with Him is all important. So let's all strive to do even better as we begin, in essence, anew to fellowship.